I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews 13. All right, Hebrews 13. Now, I'm going to share some things with you this afternoon that uh, perhaps a lot of you um, already know. Um, I don't know, but I'd like to to lay a sort of a groundwork, a, a, a foundation for uh, some continuation of this teaching that I'd like to bring uh, to you next couple of weeks, and uh, really I hope challenge our thinking about some things. But uh, let me start here uh, today with this. So we've been talking about authority in the church, right? And if you've been following for the last few weeks, you know that first of all, I uh, took the first two weeks to talk about authority that is universal, that is universal church authority. And the number one uh, place where we find the authority of the church is the authority that is inherent. It's not vested or derived, it's an inherent authority, and that is found, the, the inherent authority of the church is where? Jesus Christ, right, that should be an easy answer, right? Jesus Christ, but it's important to remember as we gather together that we're gathering together in the spiritual presence of Jesus himself, that it is his church and that we need to be really sensitive about letting him rule his people every time we gather together. So that's the universal inherent authority. There is also a universal vested authority in, or derived authority, it is vested in um, a certain group of people in this case, but those people together as a group govern the entire church today. Who was that? Y'all remember? The apostles, right, the apostles. And uh, so, so the 11 original apostles, uh, Paul, perhaps James, um, the, the, the prophets that were connected with them, that uh, that in connection with the apostles, they they and under the inspiration of the Spirit, they gave us the scriptures. Those scriptures then are what we still have today, though we don't have the apostles physically visibly with us. We have their writing, that is the New Testament, and of course we have the Old Testament. We have the New Testament writing, and so together those govern the church and should govern every church of Jesus Christ on the face of the earth. It is a universal authority, but then. Last time, which was two weeks ago, we moved into the sphere of the local church, and we talked about local authority over individual congregations. And so last time we were together, we opened our Bibles and turned to five different New Testament passages that seemed to demonstrate that an assembled Christian congregation, the assembled Christian congregation or as in the words of Acts chapter 6, the full number of the disciples is the final court of appeal in terms of church matters. This was a position that was stated by many of our Puritan forefathers, including men by, like um, John Owen, whose book we're reading in the men's Sunday school class, who uh, met together and, um, and created um, such documents in in colonial America as the Cambridge platform that I quoted from uh, for you a couple of weeks ago and the English Savoy Declaration of 1658. So this is some of the outworkings now 
in, in the English-speaking context of, of the, the ideas of the Reformation. Um, and of course, those men believed, <clears throat> the men who, who formed uh, those statements believed that they were merely following the ancient pattern that was defined by our Lord in Matthew chapter 18 and exhibited throughout the early church in passages like Acts 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So we talked about congregationalism and the authority that Christ has invested in all of his spirit-filled people. However, the local church is not merely a kind of democracy. There is another element in local church authority that we need to talk about, and I just want to set the groundwork for it today. Um, And to start with the book of uh, Hebrews, chapter 13. So if you're there, um, verse number uh, 17. Hebrews 13, 17. All right. The word says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls and those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So we are commanded here um, about some things. There are two words of command. What's the first one? Somebody say it out loud. Obey. What's the second word of command? Submit. All right. So we're commanded about some things. Let's take each one of those for a moment. The word obey is actually a bit of an unusual word um, in the New Testament. Um, It indicates that uh, those who have authority, that is the congregation, are also under authority, um, it, is a, it is a bit of an unusual word for obedience. It's not the word that we use when we say, when the Bible reads, children, obey your parents in the Lord, or servants, obey your masters. Um, nor is it the word that is used in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, where Paul admonishes the Thessalonian church to, quote, obey what we say to you in this letter, that is, apostolic authority, This is a word um, that I want to describe in three ways. First of all, the root of it just means to to persuade, to persuade someone of something. It's a word not of absolute inherent authority, but of secondary applicatory authority. There is truth, and you're trying to persuade someone of that truth. And if that truth is true, then it's you know, then, it's, then, it, then it ought to be informing and binding upon those who hear it. That's kind of the idea. Um, secondly, this word is passive. So it has the idea of being persuaded. And thirdly, it's a indicative, or, or I'm sorry, an imperative or a command. So maybe you would say something like, um, allow yourself to be persuaded might be a good way to say it. Allow yourself to be persuaded by your leaders. And the second word of command is the word submit. Submit, which means to surrender or to yield any opposition that may be in your heart. 
So these are the two commands. And then there is the object. To whom are Christians to submit? Whom are they to obey? Go ahead and say it. What does it say? Obey your leaders. Obey your leaders. So, if there are leaders within the congregation, we can infer that the church is not a pure sort of leaderless democracy. We all kind of get together and it's just kind of a a big mob and we all, you know, everybody just kind of floats their own ideas and we just sort of kind of somehow end up somewhere. Um, The Bible does ordain, God ordains that there be leadership within a church. The churches are not out of order, but they are ordered in a certain fashion. Um, Now the next question is then, who are these leaders? Who are the leaders of the church? And the answer in this context is found, if you go backwards a little bit, to verse number 7. So take a gander back at Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders. There's the same Greek word that's used here. Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So, in the context of Hebrews 13, who are the leaders? They are also called those who do what? Who speak to you the word of God. Yeah. The leaders are those who speak the word of God publicly to the congregation. Um, Which implies a couple things. Number one, um, church leadership, leadership authority is primarily exercised through speaking, through preaching, through teaching. That is the primary means of the exercise of authority of church leadership. And secondly, notice that this is a speaking of the Word of God so that their speaking does not have inherent authority but derived authority. In other words, church leaders' authority, church leaders are authoritative in so much as they are being true to the Word of God. And that is an important um, distinction, actually, uh, or it's an important clarification. Church authority is authoritative in so much as, as it is true to the Word of God, as it is the voice of God from the Scriptures coming through, um, being applied, being preached, being taught um, by the uh, by those who are authorized to, to preach the Word of God. And, and I say it's an important um, clarification to make that this is not inherent authority but derived because in the Roman Catholic Church, for example, the Roman Church holds that there are two lines of authority. Right? So there is ecclesiastical authority, that is authority inherent in the office of the of the ruler, whatever that is, the the bishop, the the priest, the the pope, ultimately. There is ecclesiastical authority, and there is also biblical authority. They hold that there are two parallel tracks of authority. Now, we might argue that one, that the the authority of, of, of 
of the, the human beings that are involved in the church and their traditions end up trumping the other and really being the grid through which everything else is read. We might argue that, but the church argues, the Roman church argues that there are two parallel tracks. And the implication then of that kind of thinking is that the church, listen to this carefully, the church in its ecclesiastical authority, the church has a right to command whatever the Scripture does not expressly forbid. That is called the normative principle. Okay. Now, on the other hand, churches that came from the Protestant tradition, the Reformed tradition, that have that heritage, they insist that ecclesiastical authority is rooted, it's rooted in and derived from biblical authority. Okay? That's a clear, that's a a significant clarification. There are two elements of authority, but they're not parallel. One is rooted in the other and derived from the other so that biblical authority takes precedence. That's why one of the great themes of the Reformation was sola, right? Sola Scriptura. So the Reformed tradition insists that ecclesiastical authority must be rooted in and derived from biblical authority. The implication then is that the church may only command what the Bible commands. Otherwise, we are operating as the Pharisees who put for God, the commandments of men. This is what's been called the regulative principle. The Bible regulates the church, and, and, and the boundaries of the Bible are the boundaries of what ecclesiastical authority in the church can, can, um, can, can impose upon the, the, the body of believers. And that is um, where we're coming from. And that's what we believe that the, that the Scripture teaches. Of course, um, the, word is not, the Word of God is not explicit about everything. We all know that. Sometimes you, uh, you, you wish that God would just sort of write out in the sky, here's where you ought to go, or here's what you ought to do, or, or something more explicit. The Word of God is not explicit about everything. Much of what the Bible teaches, it does teach by way of implication. The Bible implies, necessarily implies, certain things. If if what it says is true, it necessarily implies certain things. And it's right for us to teach those things. And of course, if we're going to obey the Word of God in our peculiar contexts, then we're also going to need application of the Word of God. We're going to need to take what the Bible explicitly teaches and what it implies and apply it in our particular sphere, in our culture, in our environment, and what we're facing, what we're going to do as a church here in Houston, Texas in 2019. So in those cases, especially, um, congregations are called to submit to their leaders, to allow themselves to be persuaded. But it's always a persuasion that is by the Word of God. And that allowance of the congregation to... 
that willingness to submit to spiritual leadership is honestly an element of trust churches are called to place in their leaders. That they are just called to do this, to, uh, to yield to them, to allow themselves to be persuaded, to submit themselves. That trust that a congregation has for its leaders is built in at least two ways. Number one, through a consistent ministry of a careful handling of the Holy Scriptures. It's built in that way because that's the foundation of that ecclesiastical authority. His authority is rooted in the Bible. So to, to, the, the, to, the, <laughs> to the degree that the leaders of the church are careful over time after time after time with the Word of God, to the best of their ability, we're all trying to figure out what God said and getting our, you know, doing our best with it. But to the extent that that happens, that trust is built up. And secondly, that trust is built by the consistent example of lives being transformed by the Holy Scriptures. So the leaders not only are careful handlers of the Holy Scriptures, they're also demonstrations of what it looks like when lives are transformed by those Scriptures. And that is right here in this text. Look at verse number 7. Remember your leaders who spoke to you the Word of God, but it says also consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So church leaders are supposed to be those whose lives are worthy of imitation. That is not imitation in every single detail as if the leader was entirely perfect. God forbid that any of us should look to any man for that kind of perfection because we will all be sorely disappointed. But nevertheless, the life of Jesus should be being formed in the one who handles the word of God week after week. Those who teach, those who preach, the word of God should be so much being formed in them that uh, they are recognized as examples worthy of following. So those two things then, the careful handling of the Bible and the evidence of a transformed life become apparent to the congregation and help build the trust that's necessary for such spiritual leadership. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, let no one despise your youth, but be a what? You know it? Be a, an example. Be an example. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, he told Timothy, until I come, listen to this, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. And the outcome is this, so that all may see your progress. 
the congregation would see the carefulness of the minister with the word, his devotion to the scripture in public reading, in exhortation, and in teaching, how he practices these things, how he immerses himself in these things. And they would also see his example in conduct, love, faith, and purity. Everyone in the congregation sees this kind of progress in this person, and so they are able to exercise spiritual leadership in the flock. So, verse number seven, leaders are those who speak the word of God. But at the same time, it's not as if the leaders are just able to say, okay, I got up in the Sunday school class or in the church or in the, in the, in the gathering of the assembly and I preached the word and I spoke the word and now it's up to you guys, so take it or leave it. Because there's another element. If you go back to verse 17... That's a part of this spiritual leadership. Verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, look at this, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, this spiritual leadership in the congregation, ecclesiastical leadership includes an accountability for souls within the congregation so that the Word of God is not just preached but pressed upon individual consciences. And frankly, that kind of ministry um, in a group of people of any size is a a daunting thing and should never be taken up lightly. The 18th century Scottish minister John Brown wrote in a letter to a young friend who was frustrated with the small congregation to which he was assigned. He said, I know the vanity of your heart that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at His judgment seat, you will think you have had enough. This is a holy thing for any leader, any teacher within a congregation to have. It is a, um, a burden, a joyous burden, but a burden to know that he will have to give an account for his ministry in the lives of the flock that God has put him in. This kind of accountability and oversight will produce one of two responses in church leaders as they think about your life. Verse 17, what are those two responses? Somebody say the first one out loud. Joy, there's one. What's the other one? Groaning. <laughs> and you know, I've found that when I pray for the flock that God has entrusted to me, those are my two instinctual responses when I begin to pray. 
joy. Like Paul says, I thank God every time I remember you in my prayers to God for you. Or groaning, oh Lord. And I want you to consider what kind of response that you elicit when your leader pray, your leaders pray for you. It's a good question to ask. Are you living in such a way as to bring joy to your spiritual leaders? And it's not just for their sakes, but for your own. Because look at the end of verse 17 again. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. There are people who, when they are pressed by pastoral oversight, they buck against it as if it were some kind of oppression or harassment. This pastor is pestering me. When in reality, it is to their advantage to be pressed like that. For what would their life be like if God were to just say, fine, I will take it all away from you. He says, it is for your advantage to hear, to receive the ministry of spiritual leadership in the context of a local church. So the commands, again, just kind of put it all together and go from here. The commands are obey and submit. The object, those who we're looking to obey and submit to are leaders, or to say it another way, those who speak the word of God. So to sort of flesh it out a little bit more, let's ask this. So who are those who speak the word of God publicly to the congregation? Who are the ones who speak the word of God publicly to the congregation? So I'm going to have you turn to another passage, to uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. Okay. There's Timothy 3. Okay, I found it. And look at uh, the first few verses here. The saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy of For dishonest gain, they must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. 
Let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So here we see that um, Paul spells out two officers within the local church, the overseer and the deacon. Um, And then he spells out the qualifications for the offices. And the qualifications for these two offices are of two types, two types of qualifications. On the one hand, there are qualifications of character and family, right? His personal character and his character with regards to his family. On the other hand, and, and, and those kinds of qualifications are applied to both the overseer and the deacon, right? Are you still with me? <laughs> There's another type of qualification that's only identified with one of those. And that is that he should be able to teach. And that applies in this context to the office of what? What? The overseer. Okay. So one of the distinguishing things between overseer and deacon is that overseers are uniquely gifted to be teachers. Now remember from Hebrews, the leaders that Hebrews had in mind were those who did what? Speak the word of God, which is the main avenue of the leader's authority. So those who keep watch over your souls in Hebrews are called here in 1 Timothy overseers. Those who keep watch over your souls, who speak to you the word of God, those who are overseers who are able to teach. So here we have another term that's used to describe the spiritual leaders to whom we are to obey and to submit, those people are called overseers in the church. The church overseer. The old word, the old King James word for this was bishop. So you kind of hear in that. We've heard of churches having bishops. We don't typically call anyone bishop around here, but it is the the term overseer or bishop is a biblical term. Um, The rest of the New Testament gives us a couple of other terms for spiritual leaders in the local church. And so we're going to run through five passages just real briefly. I'm not really going to say much of anything, just boom, boom, boom. So are you ready? You need to stretch. Ugh. I don't know. Do something. Rub your shoulder. You know, roll your shoulders around. I don't know. Whatever you want. Okay, so here we go. Let's look at five passages, and then we'll try to draw to conclusions. So Acts 20 is one. Let's start there. Just work our way through the New Testament. We're looking for an answer to this question, who are these spiritual leaders? We've seen them called overseers in 1 Timothy. We're looking to add some biblical terminology to our repertoire. So Acts, I'm sorry, i got to get to it now. Acts 20, um, and let's start with verse 17. Paul Uh, from Miletus sends to Ephesus um, and he calls to him the, what's the term? The elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he started to speak to them. So there's a church in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus has a church and that church has elders. So he calls the elders of that church to come um, 
who are clearly the, the spiritual leaders, because you'll see what he says to them in verse number 28. He says in verse 28, uh, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you, what? Overseers, all right, that's the same word we saw in Timothy. That's, that's the word that's identified as what was taking place in Hebrews 13. So he says, pay attention to the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. And the word care means to shepherd, to shepherd the flock, which you see in the imagery here. It's a flock, it's God's flock, God's the good shepherd, Christ is the good shepherd, but he has under shepherds who watch over the flock. So here we have clearly a parallel between at least a couple of terms that is the term elder and the term what? What's the new one? I'm sorry. Yeah. Overseer. Yeah. That's the old one. The term el- overseer and now the term elder are used together to, to talk about the same group of people in the Ephesian church. And they were to shepherd the people of God. Now, let's turn to the second passage. Ephesians chapter 4. All right. Work our way through. Galatians, Ephesians 4. Verse number 11. This is talking about the risen Christ who in his ascension and enthronement gave gifts to his church. And the gifts are laid out in verse 11. He gave the apostles. Well, we saw that a couple of weeks ago. That is a great gift to the church. In connection, close connection with them are the prophets. So there are apostles and prophets And then he gave the evangelists. And fourthly, he gave the shepherds and teachers. And those two go together because they're not separated from the others in the same way. So they're they're united, shepherds and teachers. So one of the um, gifts that Christ gives to his church are shepherds. By the way, that's the same term. It's, It's related to the same term. It's the noun form of the same term we saw in Acts chapter 20, where he said, shepherd the flock, or care or feed for the flock, feed the flock. So here they're called shepherds or pastors, pastors. So now we have three terms, don't we? We have overseers, elders, pastors. Now we go on to a couple other passages, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. And verse number five. Uh, Writing to Titus, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders. There's one of our terms there. That you might appoint elders in every town. Remember, Paul established a little budding church in in many of these towns that he went to. So in each of these churches, he's to establish or appoint elders as I directed you, verse 6, if anyone is above reproach. All right, so these elders need to be above reproach, the husband of one wife with children, believers not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And then look at verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and 
discipline. So you see he's using, again, two terms interchangeably, elder and overseer are being used for the same office. Two more passages, and we'll be done. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5. All right, verses 1 to 3. Okay, this one is going to actually have all three terms, so look for them as I read. See if you can figure it out. One of them's not really, but it's not uh, the noun form. 1 Peter 1. I'm sorry, 1 Peter 5. 1. So I exhort thee, what? Elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God, or pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising, there's our third term, oversight. Exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples for the flock. So here we have three terms. Two of them are used as verbs, but they're three terms, all talking about the same group, right? Elders, pastors, and what's the other one? Overseers. All right. One more passage, and uh, we'll be done. And that's uh, going backwards a little bit to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse number 1. Just one verse. This is Paul writing to the church in the town of Philippi. And this is the way he summarizes the entire church. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. All right, so you have saints, you have overseers or pastors or elders, depending on what term you want to use, and then you have the deacons. And this, why in this passage are there no mention of the elders or the pastors? Because it would be repetitious, right? They're being used all of the same group. And you have the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where there are, um, uh, uh, what we saw where there are the, the listing of qualifications for these two offices within the church. Pastors, shepherds, elders, overseers on the one hand and deacons on the other. So, all of that to say this, and I know this is some, something that probably a lot of you already, already got. You're on the same page, but this is foundational, and I hope it'll help as we go forward. The New Testament evidence then demonstrates that these three terms are synonymous, all referring to the leaders that were described in Hebrews chapter 13. These people are called elders because of their spiritual maturity. They may not necessarily be the oldest men in the congregation like Timothy, whom he said, don't let people despise your youth, but be an example, a spiritual maturity about them. They're called overseers because they're given leadership in the affairs of the church. And they're called pastors because they're responsible for the care and the feeding of the church as the flock of God, particularly the feeding of them of the word of God. So we see at a local level then that authority rests not only in, in the congregation but also in its pastors, elders, or overseers. Now, let me draw it to a conclusion and make some applications here. Um, 
There is a danger, I think, of abuse on, in both of these elements of authority within the local church setting. So, for example, we know that a pastor may abuse his flock in his pride and in his arrogance, domineering over the flock. And this is tyranny that, Paul, that uh, Peter warns about in 1 Peter chapter 5. But on the other hand, the congreg- a congregation member may rebel against the elders in his pride. And that results in anarchy, the kind of anarchy that Hebrews 13 warns about. So there is a danger on either side of the abuse of authority. How do these things work together, the congregation and the elders? Well, the congregation is supposed to exercise authority under the Lord, And under the apostolic scripture, they're supposed to exercise authority over the church's membership. The pastor, um, I'm sorry, but, okay, so the church, let me go back, I lost my place. So the church is supposed to exercise authority over the membership, but she is also to submit to the leadership of her pastors, elders, or overseers in the exercise of that authority. Okay. The Cambridge platform that I mentioned a few weeks ago um, in chapter 10 deals with the relationship of the authority of the congregation to that of the eldership, or what the platform calls the presbytery, which is just plural for elder. Right? There are two premises, the, the premises that they outline, and then they draw a conclusion. All right, we're, we're, we're working to the end. This is it. All right, you're still with me. It's warm. Um, yeah, it's warm. Amen. There you go. All right. Somebody's alive out there. There are two premises. One is this, that elders have authority. The Cambridge platform calls it ordinary authority. Elders have ordinary authority. By ordinary, they mean authority to set the church in order or to administer what we call the ordinances or to ordain other elders. You know, that's this is the a kind of ruling authority. The congregation, they said, on the other hand, has authority as well. It is the authority, they called it the authority of privilege. That is what we would call the authority of membership. The power to censure and the power to release people from censure and back into fellowship with the church. They said then, if these two premises are biblical, then it follows that in an organic church, rightly ordered, quote, no church act can be consummated or perfected without the consent of both. That is the congregation working in concert with and being led by her elders, overseers, or pastors. So the congregation lends the weight of church consensus to her decisions, and the eldership ensures that the acts of the congregation are not those of a misguided mob. Now, just a brief application this afternoon, and we'll be done. Um, and I'll say a little bit more about this next week. So, how do we? Where do we go from here? What should we take from this? Well, on a very basic level, when a pastor preaches a text of the Bible carefully. Let your conscience be bound by it, bound by the Word of God. 
Allow yourself to be persuaded by the spiritual leadership as they are carefully handling the Bible. Even if it's something you don't want to hear or it's going to change the way that you're, you, you live or your family behaves or what you think is okay to do or not to do or what, what we ought to be doing as a congregation. To allow ourselves to be led by God-given authority. When elders make an application of the Word of God in the life of the church, don't be quick to dismiss it, especially if it receives congregational support. There are, there are Christians who, who never, ever find a church because every church they go to, they find things that they just don't agree with and they're just lo- going to be Lone Ranger Christians because they just feel like they could never submit to that leadership and that church. Their attitude is, I alone understand the Word of God better than all my pastors and all my fellow church members, which is just possible, right? But not very probable. (laughs) More likely, that person is expressive of a presumptuous pride that needs to be chastened by some humility. There are unusual occasions when it is one person contramundo against the whole world. But in general, God's people are wise to submit themselves and are obedient when they submit themselves to the teaching of the Word of God as it is preached in their church. There are three key attitudes in relating to the ministry of spiritual overseers. Number one, humility. An attitude that says, okay, I've learned a lot, but I don't know everything. So I'm, I'm, I'm teachable. I'm humble. An openness. An attitude that it says, I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to hear. I'm willing to submit to whatever God says. And thirdly, a continual willingness to change. There are some Christians who I, I've seen who I feel like they just kind of, they grew for a while and they got to a point where they figured they kind of knew everything there was to know about God and the Bible and they just, they're going to stay there the rest of their life. They, I mean, you can tell them all kinds of great things and they'll just, it just kind of goes right past their ears. I'm done changing. But this kind of submission is going to require that we're constantly willing to re-examine ourselves in light of the Word of God as it is hopefully carefully preached and proclaimed, and um, set in order by church authority. Um, You can cultivate these attitudes, and if you will, then God will use the ministry of spiritual leadership in your life to great benefit, I hope. Father, thank you for this teaching from the Word, and we pray that you would continue to help us as a church to come more in line with what you have revealed. Give us wisdom in the next few few weeks as we continue to look at these things, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.